was a man with us some of the time. He was a dark man. He, he, I, was, I was looking through the rearview mirror and I'd see him just sitting there grinning at me. I thought I could outrun him. <laughs> I can't outrun the dark man. My name is Stephen King. Welcome to Filmstrip and our views of selected works of Stephen King featuring Nick. Being hijacked by a bunch of government sons of bitches in spacesuits does that to me every time. And Jay. I can hear! I can talk! These podcasts will be spoiler-filled and contain in-depth discussions of the plots, characters, and themes. We got to get started. Time's short. All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm M-O-O-N. That spells Nick. <laughs> and obviously this is our review of Stephen King's The Stand. Uh, part 1, The Plague, and Part 2, The Dreams. Starring Gary Sinise, Molly Ringwald, Jamie Sheridan, Rob Lowe, Bill Fagerbach, Ray Walston, Adam Stork, Corin Nemec, Miguel Ferrar, Laura San Giacomo, Matt Frewer, and Ruby D. Directed by Mick Garris as a television miniseries in 1994. Aired in four parts on ABC. And back in those days, I remember watching it. I mean, this was like appointment television, man, because my dad had read the book at that time, and I hadn't, but uh, really wanted to after watching this. And then I did read it uh, sometime later, and I, I believe I read through it twice. And I know I've seen this entire series at least twice. I think this is one of the ones where both of us have read it, and we've both seen it before. Yeah, I read this book many, 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 many years ago. Uh what an opus it was. Uh, the version I read was, oh, yeah. I think, 1,100 pages, 1,100 plus pages. I think yeah. over the years, there's been a couple different versions of it that Stephen King's released. I think the original one was under 1,000, because I guess back in the, uh, was this like 80s was this released? This was in the 70s, 1978. Yeah, I remember it. reading that there was kind of a controversy with the length of the book, and they believed that no one would ever read a book over 1,000 pages. So he actually went and removed up to like, 20,000 words, you know, up to like, I think it was like 300 pages to release it in the 70s. And then later, back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, he re-released it and added all that back in and then actually changed a lot of the time period so it would actually match up with the 90s. And then uh, I believe there is another one that actually was released not too long ago. I think, yeah, there was a, yet another unabridged edition to it that, that had a little bit more, if you can imagine, more detail. I read the un, the original unabridged, I guess I'd say, that was around 1,100 pages. And I, I do remember thinking, man, this is this one is going on and on. I mean, it was a long read, no doubt, but a, but an entertaining one and, and a different one. And I'll say this, having read a lot of Stephen King's stuff, we've complained a lot about what usually goes wrong with his stuff is that sometimes it just goes on and on forever. And the stand certainly does that, but I was very invested in that story. And, you know, this is a four part mini series. So it's uh, right around six hours, six and a half hours when you total it all out, you know, for running time. That's a long time to watch something, but I do remember it being very engrossing at the time uh, when it came out. I was, uh, I was a big fan of this. In fact, I think I said at one time, this was a better miniseries than it 
because you know we talked about that when we did the review of it that the second part of it is you know much less than the first part because the adults are just not as interesting as those kids were and it it suffers for that this one though i mean the entire first two parts is really just this incredibly elaborate setup and i think that's that's an interesting entry point to this cuz the the setup is half of the story oh definitely i mean I don't know when you first... Did you see this actually when it first aired on ABC? Yes, I watched it live, taped it on a, on a VHS, and wound up watching it again and again afterward, just in bits and pieces, but I watched it when it happened. See, I watched most of it when it came out on ABC. I think I missed the first part. I mean, I was young, dude. I mean, I'm talking like I was 10 when this came out. Yeah, I was going to say, this was... Yeah, I, I'm a little older than you, so I was in high school when this, this came out, so I was... Definitely into it. But I remember watching it with my old man, and I remember he actually, he used to tape everything on TV, so he actually ended up taping this one, and I remember watching it, like, maybe a few years later when I was homesick. I had, I got mononucleosis really bad, and I remember watching it when I had to come home from school one day just from being under the weather from dealing with that, and uh, yeah, I remember that was probably the last time I actually watched this, it was probably back when I was like, yeah, about 14, 15, so... <laughs> Oh, wow. It's been over a decade since I passed through any of this. I think it's been on television a couple of times. Funny story about this, in preparing for this podcast, because once we decided to put the stand back in our Stephen King retrospective, we we're going to end with it, I had this in my Netflix queue, because it's the only way you can get it from Netflix is streaming, for the longest time. And by George, by the time we get around to recording this thing, they pulled it out of Netflix. I had to go to another source to try to watch it in time to uh, record for this. I had it sitting in my queue for months, uh, knowing eventually we would get around to it. And, it, and even if we didn't, I had sort of told myself I was going to watch it again because it had been so long, and I was curious to revisit it. And I don't know that I'll ever go back to that book and read it again. But uh, it's an investment. I don't it's know. An it, investment to read. It, it it really is like I you know I I will revisit the book it which is also an investment to read. But I will go back to that either in audio form or I'll actually pick up my my paperback of it and read that from time to time because I can get into that one and read it. And it's also one you can walk away from for. You know, a long time and come back and be fine with this one. Like you have to stay with it. I mean, it's you'll get lost in all the characters. People talk all the time about the uh, the Game of Thrones books. You know, the Song of Fire and Ice books that you just get lost in who's who at some point. That really happens in the stand. Like there's a whole lot of people in this, and there's even more in the book that are not in the miniseries. I mean, that cast list was huge, and I cut it in half basically for our podcast. Yeah, and I actually I think there's... even for the TV show they cut the cast in half for themselves. I know that they uh yeah they did they, yeah. they combined a few of the characters, and I know they cut out a lot of the characters. I know they uh one of the uh one of the main girls that we'll talk about soon uh her mother and boyfriend were actually were part of the plot in the book, and they just completely eliminated him from the story completely for the miniseries. Yeah, I mean, I, Stephen King did the adaptation himself, so he, you know, obviously wanted to do it and had proven himself to be able to cut down his own work. I mean, that's uh, any author would love to do that, and he's done a decent enough job at that before. So. I think he's better at cutting down his own work as opposed to adding to his own work like we saw with the story Maximum Overdrive. But yeah, I, I wouldn't put him behind the camera again. And if, you know, maybe someday we can go do that that TV Shining just as a kind of a one-off thing because that was his version of that. But I actually like the way he cut it together here. I think it's smart. And Mick Garris is a guy he's worked with quite a bit and is a good filmmaker. He's good at keeping large casts economical. 
if you will, and and really making that stuff work. So I I actually will applaud the adaptation. I think it, for better or worse, is is a good version of what you get. If you never read the book, but you're just enamored with Stephen King and you watch this or you've seen this or have thought about it or whatever, you really get the crux of it on on the screen here. And the stuff they cut is superfluous in a lot of ways. I mean, it would have rounded out a couple of characters, sure, but, I mean, again, there's a million people in this film. You, you find somebody to, to latch onto. Well, even with, I think, a lot of with Stephen King's writing, too, is when you read a lot of his older books, a lot of his longer books, too, is there's a lot of story threads and characters that are just kind of seem like they're put in there just to go nowhere. And I think a lot of that is, a lot of that is in the stand, too. I mean, there's subplots and characters and in the end it's really it was they weren't important to the overall story oh i mean yeah there's there's totally little threads here and there and you know the thing about king is he likes to throw little things in there that if you're paying keen attention to you see how it pays off and how it works and such but in the larger arcs that they are going nowhere they are nothing they're just there you know they're just throwaways and uh you know especially in a in a horror story and i mean this this story is a lot of things. It's about society. It's about apocalypse. It's got definitely got some Christian undertones in it, and all of that. And it's and it's got a well, horrific in element. The yeah, yeah. In particular, in the miniseries, the way that's done. And again, King adapted it himself, so clearly he wanted to put that in there. The way it's done. I mean, there's a lot of elements in there, but there's definitely a scare in there. I mean, the idea that almost 99 percent of the population gets wiped out in a matter of weeks is a real frightening concept. I mean, it's not original, you know, every, you know, George Romero's done that and Carpenter's dealt with that. A lot a lot of the guys have done that. But the way he handles it here, I've always been intrigued with and and really got into. And I guess before we get any further into this, uh, we should give a a little bit of a summary of what we're going to talk about. I mean, the way that we're going to do this, we've broken this huge miniseries into basically two parts. So we're going to talk about the first two parts, which, as I said before, was the big setup, and then we can talk about you know what happens in the next episode, I, I suppose. But let's, uh, let's do a quick plot summary, and then we can get into the discussion a little more. At a government laboratory in California, a weaponized version of the flu is accidentally released, immediately wiping out everybody on staff except for a military policeman and his family who flee the base. However, they are also infected, and they spread the flu, uh, nicknamed Captain Trips, to the outside world. The MP crashes his car in a gas station in East Texas, where Stu Redman and some of his friends are gathered, and while the other townspeople become sick, Stu remains healthy and is confined at a CDC facility in Vermont in order to study a possible cure. This proves futile, and the superflu rages unchecked, causing civilization to collapse, killing almost 99% of the population. After the infection runs its course, a small group of immune survivors are scattered across the country. These include rock star Larry Underwood, who just had his big breakout with Baby Can You Dig Yo Man? We're going to get into that. But it's now stranded in New York City. Uh, Nick Andros, a deaf mute man in the Midwest. Franny Goldsmith, a young girl in Maine. Uh, Lloyd Henry, a criminal stuck in a prison cell. And the trash can man, a mentally ill scavenger. The survivors soon start having visions either of a kindly old African-American lady, Mother Abigail, or of a demonic figure known as Randall Flagg. As their journeys begin, Lloyd is freed from prison by Flagg in exchange for becoming his second-in-command. 
The trash can man, who's a pyromaniac, destroys a set of fuel tanks outside of Des Moines, Iowa, in order to win Flag's favor. Larry escapes escapes New York and meets a mysterious woman named Nadine who, despite their uh, mutual attraction, can't seem to consummate the relationship because Nadine is obsessed by her visions of flag and eventually gives in to those to go and join him in Las Vegas. Stu escapes the CDC facility and gathers with a group of survivors, including Franny, her friend Harold from uh, her hometown, and a professor named Glenn Bateman, and they all make their way to Nebraska to meet Mother Abigail or the others join Flag in Las Vegas. And uh, the group from Nebraska travel to Boulder, Colorado, and that sets up the end of part two of, of how this miniseries goes. So that's really kind of the whole thing. I mean, the, like we said, the first four hours is really setting all of this up, and let's start right out of the gate with the way the super flu attacks because the first 10 minutes of this are you know all hell breaking loose at the army base yeah well the first scene that we get is uh would be the basically someone being informed to shut the gate shut the gate that there's something going on here and this military policeman um hears the sirens going off and he knows he obviously knows something's up so the, what he does is he goes and he grabs his wife and his daughter, I believe, and they get to, you know get out of Dodge and kind of a little bit of an anticlimactic scene with them trying to escape the uh, powerful chain link fence because I'm sure his uh, <laughs> big ass uh, Buick you know can't break through a chain link fence. But anyways, they escape it and make their way to town. And I honestly did not remember this at all from when I watched this. I totally forgot about this. And even when I was doing a little bit more research on this. I guess they actually, Stephen King went and added this back into the book. This was actually not part of the original book that was out, was how this started. It was almost kind of a mystery of what really happened with this super flu. And it's kind of interesting, too, because the producers and Stephen King all said that they based this miniseries on the original version of the book, not the new one that came out a few years before the production of this. But they included this from the book of Stephen King felt it was an important scene to show in the movie. Yeah, that's the thing to note is that in the book, there's an entire chapter that is just specifically how the flu spread. And it's it's almost like if you've ever read the Gospel of Matthew and the genealogy of Christ, that so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. And I, I think it's purposely structured that way. It's like John infected Harry and Sally on flight 274, and they infected an entire you know, group here, and it's how the entire flu spreads. But it's it. I of course had read that extended version, and it starts with the the whole breakout from the military base. But they don't really explain how it spreads on in the film here. It's just that you hear reports of it and such. But I'll tell you, I remember this opening, and you want to know why? Because how can you forget it? The opening credits are all of the dead people laying around, and Blue Oyster cults don't fear the Reaper. Play it. I mean, what an ominous beginning. I mean, that that song is forever in my head linked to this miniseries. I know it was it's twenty years older, but I just can't help but visualize this when I hear that song now because there's just those little haunting chords, you know. I mean, it it is, and this was before more cowbell, you know. So it, uh, I, that's, that, that, I unfortunately, that's that. my reference to this song is uh, the cowbell. <laughs> Well, it, it it does change uh, hands quite a bit, but I remember the opening for this, and I actually I kind of like it. It's an economical way to set up everything because in the way that they explain things, they don't explain anything either. They never really tell us 
how all of it got out of control. I mean, we see a lot of Ed Harris as the, you know, cameo and as the military general or whatever who feels responsible for all of this, but we never really know what happens. We just know that it it is colossally bad, and that is not the only way we can sum that up. I just took it as this is some really super powerful flu and it's almost spreading like a zombie epidemic where it's just yeah. going from person to person to person really quick. I mean, the fact that you see that the driver, the MP dead, you know, when Gary Sinise finds him, see, you know, the way his face looks and everything like that, you can tell this is a pretty <coughs> fast acting, you know, flu bug, you know, yeah, it turns out he made it through a couple states, but for him to die within, you know, a day or two shows how quick this thing is moving. And even the, even the Blue Oyster Cult song, when they show all the guys dead around the facility, these people were dead working at their stations. Yeah. It wasn't like they were all in their bed or they were in, like, you know, some type of, like, hospital or infirmatory. They were all dead looking through, you know, the guy was looking through a microscope and he fell over dead next to it. I mean, so to me, it's kind of showing that this stuff is fast moving and fast acting. Yeah, and that's where we're really introduced to our first major character, that wreck where he, the guy wrecks his car at the gas station. Stu Redman, you know, Lieutenant Dan, Gary Sinise. I mean, what do you make of Sinise just in general? I tend to like him, but I don't know that I've ever seen him do a what I'd call a leading role and carry a film. He's usually, you know, like also starring. Yeah, he's normally the guy who's kind of the shifty-eyed guy who might turn out to be the bad guy in the end. I'm thinking, like, a movie like Ransom or something where it turns out, oh, he was the bad guy behind it. Because yeah. he's just got those eyes where it's like, yeah, I really can't trust you. So seeing him as a leading man, you know, it's you don't really see him as it, but I think he, from his... The way he's playing, I think he's doing actually doing a pretty good job. I mean, his back and forth when he gets in the CDC with the guy, I mean, you kind of see him as kind of a... Not necessarily like you're typical good guy i mean that's that's someone else in the series he's kind of like the i guess star wars reference he'd be kind of like the han solo of the series yeah i mean he's just a he's just a normal guy but he's definitely got an edge to him i mean he gets pretty violent you know being held up uh, and who can blame him but being held up as he calls it hostage you know by all these cdc guys and stuff but he's just uh he's the country boy you know, and I kind of can buy that off of him. Sinise always plays Southerners really well. I don't know what it is. He just kind of gets it. And uh, I, I like him, again, as a side character in things. He's usually good in that. I mean, I always think of him as, uh, you know, Lieutenant Dan, of course, in Forrest Gump. But I really think him playing uh, Mattingly in Apollo 13 is one of his best roles, you know. But as far as leading, I mean, he you know he carried the the CSI New York series for years, and he it was nominated for a Golden Globe for this performance. So he was doing something right. But I don't know that he's a big screen star, so it's a smart move to get somebody like him for this because he's not supposed to be this dashing leading man. I mean, you hit it. That's really somebody else, and we'll get to him in a few minutes in the in the film. But I don't know. I like Stu here, and I I like that a lot of particularly the first episode is really through his eyes. You know, it's because most of it is what's happening to him and the people around him. And they surround him with, you know, a, a town full of people that we've all seen him in something else and they all die off quickly. But that's that's kind of the story. I mean, I don't know. He he really worked for me in, in all of this. I I really dug the way he played the Stu Redman character, particularly when everything is going to hell in that CDC facility and there's nobody left alive and he has to claw his way out of it. Yeah, definitely. I liked it, too, when the one guy comes in when he's wearing the uh, yellow hazmat suit, and yeah. Stu essentially just kind of assaults him, puts him against the wall, and he's all like, you know, the other guys come in, they're going to threaten to shoot him, and he knows they're not going to shoot him, because 
out of everybody who's had it, he's the only one that's still alive and not affected by it at all. Right. So he's like, yeah, what are you guys going to do, shoot me? Yeah, okay, then your chance of finding a cure is gone, and he's like, I can rip this thing open and get you infected, and it ain't going to matter to me, you know? Oh, I know, and that's that's what makes it cool, like I said, is because he, I mean, he is definitely willing to show some force and to get his way out of there. And I kind of had a, a flash forward, if you will, or whatever, to a movie 28 Days Later, when he has to get out of that facility, it's kind of similar to what happens to to Killian Murphy. You know, he wakes up and he's the only one left alive in the hospital after the zombie apocalypse, or whatever or even, happens uh, in that. The walk, same with The Walking Dead. That's how the first episode started for that. I see. So, just... so, so they're all ripping off Stephen King, is what we're saying. Because <laughs> so, yeah, was... that was in the book. I mean, it was a big deal in the book too. So. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be kind of like a horror trope right now, with someone waking up from a coma or something like that in a hospital full of dead people. Yeah, that well, I mean, think about how horrific that would be, though. You know, I mean, it, the thing for Stu is he's watched everyone around him die. I mean, how harrowing is that? You know, but I don't know. He, it's an interesting. I guess you want to call him lead character. He's at least our first character, and he'll become very important to the story as it goes along. But I, the thing is, in the second part, the second episode, the dreams, he has a definitely has a big part, but he's not. It's not as much about him. There's more on some of the other characters. As it goes on, and that's always the thing about an ensemble miniseries is how can they keep balancing the cast out? And I don't know, for the first two parts, I feel like it's pretty even. Like, I, I was good that they moved away from him a little bit into the second one so that it's not everything about him, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it's really a true definition of an ensemble cast so far because, like you said, there's really not one main storyline. There's no, like... You watch like even like a standard TV show. You always got your A plot and your B plot. Where this everything kind of seems to be kind of B plots right now. There's not that one main storyline yet. Well, the main storyline is that society's being wiped out by the flu, and the B, C, D plots are all everybody that has survived it. You know, who are, how are these people surviving at one, and then what is going to become of them? after this survival because this whole tale is it's not about the end of the world it's about the changing of the world as Stephen King saw it and he said he was influenced for this by watching a 60 minutes documentary on chemical warfare and he saw these rats just convulse and die and it just he said it just gave him nightmares and it affected him and that was the birthplace of this whole story and the, the idea of what if there was something created that you know killed off not everybody, but almost everybody, what would the survivors do? And then he framed it against the idea of the ultimate, you know, battle of good and evil, Armageddon, all that stuff. And that, you know, that all comes to play out later. Let's talk about our next uh, main character, I guess you'd say, our pop singer, if you will, Larry Underwood. Now, I've never seen Adam Stork in anything else but this, but they cast him specifically because he had musical Talent. He could play instruments and sing, stuff like that. And that, is, and that is him singing Baby Can You Dig Your Man, which is, that becomes a running joke that everybody winds up singing that at some point, you know, during the, during the film. But that is, that is him. And okay, nothing dates this film maybe more than that late 80s, early 90s pop sheen thing that he has got going on there. Who is he supposed to be? I don't know who this is supposed to be. Maybe this is like the white Lionel Stephen Richie? King. Maybe Stephen King always the guy. Stephen King always wanted to be the uh, the the uh, lone wolf out there, you know, professional mus- musician type guy. But I don't know. He's kind of a dude. You, his dialogue is kind of is pretty bad. I mean, some of the oh, stuff is. he's saying is just like 
Man, you sound like, you know, you sound like John Candy from freaking uh, JFK there, for, you know, sometimes talking, you know, like. Of the jive talk, yeah. Yeah, he's kind of got this jive talk, but he's not a, look doesn't look like a jive talking southerner, you know. He's like a, I don't know, poser. That's the thing, is he's from New York, but he's been in L.A., and he comes back to New York to basically hide from the drug dealers that he owes money to. So, so he's from New York, moves to L.A., is a drug guy and tries to sing like he's from Memphis. Exactly. I mean, like, yeah. Yeah. Go figure that out. Yeah. I, I know that would make a little bit more sense. Maybe if he was like from like Nashville or something, maybe like from Oak Ridge or something like that, but to be from New York going there and singing that type of music, that doesn't make any sense. It's very weird. Like I said, it's, it's an odd choice. And I, I mean, I remember it's in the book too, that way it's written that way. I don't know if Stephen King just has something for white soul singers or something, but our guys I, don't know. To I, think, that. I think it would have been better. Maybe if he was like a, you know, a hard rocking guy or something like that. Well, yeah, because like, like later song. on, he's singing like this rocking Springsteen tune on the back of some car. He found some guitar or something. And I'm like, well, see, that's more interesting than Baby Can You Dig Your Man. But maybe he's supposed to be that at his heart, he's this rootsy soul rocker. But to make it, he sold out and did the the white soul thing. I don't know. I, that... Isn't it usually the other way around? <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's often said. I got, I, got, that, I got the music in my heart, mother. I don't your, know. Your, your, your baby boy's gonna be famous. <laughs> Forty thousand dollars would be nothing. <laughs> That's the whole thing. He comes back and he's asking his like poor mom for like forty thousand dollars. Okay, forty thousand dollars today is a lot of freaking money. Yeah, exactly. Nineteen ninety four, forty thousand dollars for some little old lady to have there. It's yeah. like, boy, is that like the whole husband's life insurance policy? Something, man. Yeah, I was like, wow, that's. I mean, that's always been a lot. It's ridiculous, but ah, uh, you a, know, that, that, that's a lot of blow, man. And he doesn't look like a freaking cokehead. You know? I know, I know. I'm like, if he if he had that kind of drug low down, I, I mean. His his he would look like it. He doesn't look like he's strung out. Yeah, he'd look like Ray Liotta in the end of Goodfellas. You know, he'd have like the bags <laughs> in his eyes, the the uh, you know, the sweating, you know, brows that doesn't that never goes away, and you know, the red underneath the nose. And he looks like he looks like the cleanest cut guy you've ever seen. I mean, okay, he's got a little bit of like messy hair, but the guy looks like he probably doesn't even have a beer on Saturdays. I yeah, mean, I mean, yeah, he does not look like somebody who is addicted to cocaine to the tune of forty grand. I mean that's not right. You know, I do always do a lot of rewriting in these casts. Wouldn't it be better if this was like played like someone like Robert Downey Jr. back in the '90s or something like that? And maybe he was like some. I, I want to tell you, I was thinking the same thing, but I thought to myself, I said he probably was in jail at the probably. time, and there was no way they could have done that. But yeah, I mean, have some guy who's like an actually like in a rock band who looks like he does drugs. Well, here's the thing, though. You know who this was originally going to be? This was going to be Rob Lowe. And then they talked him out of it because the director said, no, it'd be more interesting to have you play the deaf mute than to play the the dashing rock star. And so they went with the other guy that could actually play and sing stuff because I don't think Rob Lowe can. And then, the, you know, so Rob Lowe played the deaf mute, which is, he's more of the the star, if you will, of all of this. But Well, how, how, how do you tell an actor that? Be like, hey, you know what? We kind of brought you in for this role. <laughs> but there's a role where this guy doesn't even talk. That you'd be much better at. I mean, how do you tell somebody that? I mean, basically saying it's like, "Hey, you're you're gonna be you're gonna be. The, we don't want you to act." <laughs> Mick Garris to, told Rob Lowe. He said, "I want to. See, he said, I want you to show people you can act without talking." Because that's Rob Lowe's thing. Is he's this smooth, slick talking guy and all this stuff, right? And he said, "Wouldn't it be neat is if for the bulk of your performance you have no voice, 
and and nothing. You have to do it's all in gestures and stuff, which we're going to talk about the way he plays it in, in a little bit. But that I mean that I don't know. It, it's an interesting proposition. I think it's kind of cool. I mean I I'll say this of all of the introductions that we get early on. I liked the way we get introduced to Nick Andros because he gets the crap beat out of him and then he can't even explain to the cops and the doctor that pick him up what happened to him. You know, he has to go through this whole bit about I can read lips, but I, you know, I can't hear you and I certainly can't respond to you. So he writes everything down. You know, that's the whole yeah. thing. Now, let me ask you this, though. Oh, he's deaf and dumb. <laughs> <laughs> was was the doctor hitting on him? I got this real weird feeling about that. Yeah, yeah. He kind of came off as the, uh, well, we all know him from, uh, he was a Mrs. Doubtfire, remember? he was. Well, yeah, the, uh, well, you know who he was. Too? He was also one of the guys in uh, Silver Bullet. <laughs> so he's, he's oh, one of the, I see. I try to forget that movie exists, man. <laughs> oh, I can never forget that. He's one of the howling wolves in the church scene. You can't miss him. That, that face. Oh, I think he was kind of maybe having a little bit of a Tyrese, you know, um, Paul Walker moment going on there, <laughs> where he was. Uh, it seemed like he was kind of a little bit more into him than he should be. You know, he kind of was like looking at him a little bit, like you know, hey, you know, you you can come with me. Well, no, it's the whole thing like, oh, you can you can get undressed in front of me. There's no strangers here. And I was like, wait a minute, look, I know you're a doctor, brother, but you know, that's it's, I don't know, and I don't think it's supposed. I was to waiting be that for way. someone to come in and go. He's actually really not a doctor. He's like the milk guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something. It's weird. But of course, he dies. Nothing happens. But it's it's strange. But what do you what do you make of Nick? And the whole way, like like I say, he is locked up essentially. And it's up to him after the sheriff and everybody else dies to let these prisoners free, and he's just kind of wandering the streets to figure out where to go. Um, I don't know. I mean, I obviously got to like him because he got the same name as me. I mean, that's kind of a given, <laughs> right? And uh, but uh, yeah. I mean, I remember thinking back. I remember he was actually my favorite character the first time I watched it, probably because we had the same name. I was a kid. I was like, yeah, it's cool. But uh, I don't know. He's playing it all right. I just. I kind of he's kind of overacting I think in a way of a lot of his like expressions that he's trying to give like his eyes when he's talking it's like oh I'm going to be serious so my eyes get really big and it just seemed to kind of get a little bit annoying but I do like the part though later when later when he's walking on the street and this guy who you know they called the uh, the town bully or the town bad boy who I guess they okay him for beating up people in this town but he finds Nick cuz he just wants to kill him for some reason I mean this guy is like so criminally insane that he beats up this guy for no reason and then he goes to jail for it and now he's going to go kill him because he, I don't know, I that was the part that was kind of a little bit like, okay, really, we got to have another murderous guy in these, you know, Stephen King things, you know, the guy. It's all kind of, it seems to be, you know, forced anxiety and forced tension. It's enough that the guy can't speak and talk and everybody in town dies. That would be enough. I would have been fine with the way that's played. But here's the thing about Nick. And we notice this, particularly when he hooks up with his, his kind of dim-witted buddy later on down the line, Tom. He reacts to people's voices when they are standing behind him. It's it's the worst. I mean, you know, you're talking about he's playing the part right. No, he's not. He, he You can't tell me he feels the vibration of the wind or something. He's not freaking Daredevil or Spider-Man. I mean, this he can't see, he can't hear, and he, and he can't talk, but yet he reacts to voices behind him. If you want to think of there in front of him yelling at him, and he, you know, backs up or whatever, but somebody will say something behind him, and he'll turn around and look at him, <laughs> you know? And give him these sympathetic eyes, and I'm like, how can you do that? I just, it's so, 
I mean, we banged on Corey Haim for the lousy paraplegic he was. Well, I'm sorry. Rob loves a lot of things, but he's a terrible deaf mute. I mean, he's not very good at doing it. Yeah, they're both pretty bad. I remember we got to remember we saw Corey Haim itching his ankle with one of his feet during one of those scenes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is true. I mean, it's just as bad, though. I mean, it's... But, you know what? If you If you're not picking it apart and granted I was looking at it just you know picking it to pieces because I knew we were going to talk about this stuff if you're just going with it though it it's fine I mean it's an interesting performance and it's not what you expect I think particularly in in the 90s having Rob Lowe in a basically a non-speaking role would would have been a shock for most people no one because in the trailers you have no idea that that's the case and then you get him on screen and he, he never is able to talk well, let's come on and say it. I mean, if Gary Sinise is kind of the Han Solo of this stuff, look, he's the Luke Skywalker. Oh, big time. Oh, big time. And the Nick character will become very important, particularly in part three of the of the story. But and and it's alluded to in all of his dreams with Mother Abigail and such is that you know, he's much more than just a deaf mute. You know, and those, and I like too that he's able to talk in the dreams. You know, and that in that you know that's the 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 idea. And again, going with the the Christian imagery and stuff is that. Are you telling me all, that uh, all of those Nightmare problems you have disappear when you die? You know, go ahead. Are you telling me that Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three copied Stephen King? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? He's Fra- a dream warrior, dude. Hey, uh, Frank Darabont did write that script or part of it, and he and Stephen King known collaborators. I'm just saying. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe so. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I, the Dream Warriors specifically, I think, came, those come from uh, Wes Craven, but I, I don't know how much credit he should have for those. But, you know, at le- hey, at least they don't, you know, Randall Flagg doesn't kill Nick by scratching a chalkboard. So, you know, we can we can let it go at that. But, but you know, that's, that's our three big you know, male leads, I guess you'd say, because everybody else kind of plays second fiddle to them, particularly these first two parts. But let's talk about on the bad side of things for just a second. We'll go ahead a little bit on this, but let's talk about Lloyd. Miguel Ferrer, you know, always to me the greedy businessman from RoboCop. I mean, he'll always be that guy. Oh, definitely. He's the uh, he's the guy always reaching for that grenade who just can't get it. I mean, he, I'm trying to think of other movies he was in. Uh, God, I think the only other movie that really comes to mind, and you're going to laugh when I say this, is... Deep Star Six. <laughs> I have no memory of that film at all. <laughs> he played the same type of character in Deep Star Six. I mean that 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 is his character. He is the not quite the main bad guy, always the second or third tier guy who always ends up getting it pretty bad and always seems to kind of maybe kind of regret his actions, but never will go through with being a good guy, you know? Well, yeah, and that's the thing about Lloyd is that he he and a buddy rob a liquor store. This is after the flu hit or whatever, or as it's hitting out west. And there's a shootout in the end of it, and he doesn't get away. And what ultimately happens to him is he goes to jail, and everybody dies but him. You know, and I, I want to say this about this idea. You know, Stephen King has, has posited this, so far that everyone who has survived has been quote a good person right well there's also going to be some people who live who are not good who are who are bad and what's going to become of them and i like that i mean i like this guy i think he plays these type of characters that can be heavies but they can be remotely sympathetic because you can see him going ah, i don't know if this is such a good idea but again he he gives in to his id and and goes along with the 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 path uh, for evil rather than the path of good. 
Well, what do you do? Do you stay in that prison cell and eat that rat? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's the whole thing is when Flag appears to him finally is that, you know, if he promises to stick with me, I'll, uh, you know, I'll get you free and we'll take care of you and all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, sure, anything, because he's petting that rat. You know, and again, you know, I talk about those subtle things King does that like seem to mean nothing or whatever, but that's supposed to let us know that Lloyd has some good in him. He's the Darth Vader, shall I say, or maybe the Darth Maul of this series. There's some good in him, but it's buried way beneath a lot of darkness. You know, so we're carrying this Star Wars metaphor way too far. We got to stop with that. Okay, let's bring <laughs> Lord of the Rings. He's he's the worm tongue. <laughs> I I didn't know to reference that either. So uh, maybe he's the Malfoy. There we go. We'll just do Harry Potter. We'll do them all. So um, then, then in that case, he's Ash from. Uh, he's the Jason Alien. Alexander of Pretty Woman. <laughs> well, now we've hit a new low, sir. So, but that's Lloyd and. You know, I, we can kind of quickly talk about the trash can man because he's in what, like four scenes or whatever. Matt Frewer, also known as Max Headroom, also known as the poor man's Jim Carrey. I mean, that, every time I watch this guy, that's exactly the what I think. The guy from Murphy Brown. Exactly, <laughs> that guy. You know, it's he's the he guy had from a, Generation X. He was in the Dawn of the Dead remake too, and uh, he was actually okay in that because he died fast. But uh, you know, I, I've seen him act for two or three decades now. I mean, I've seen him in a lot of stuff, and he's he's fine. Uh, but that character, I have never really understood what he was all about. It's it's this mentally unstable guy who goes around essentially looking for ways to set off pyrotechnics, right? That's what we're supposed to know about him, because that's everything that happens to him in this first two parts. Yeah, he's a pyro. I mean, that's just what he is. I mean, he's some guy who's just mentally unstable, and he just wants to start fires. I mean, he's he's kind of the whole wild card of this whole series where I don't think he's really bad because I don't think he knows how to really be bad because he's 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 mentally he's mentally challenged, and I just think he's just he's just he's kind of like just the like I said he's just a wild card. He's just there. Well, and that's what King is using here is that you know you're going to have good people that live, bad people that live, and then you're going to have a few that are just unstable, and they're going to be influenced by either the good or the bad. I mean, the flip side to him is the Tom Cullen guy. You know, he's yeah, the the he big Dauber on uh, yeah coach. yeah the big yeah Dauber from from Coach yeah. You know, Patrick he, from SpongeBob. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That guy is the flip side of him, but he's harmless because his environment has not allowed him to, you know, go after the the negative impulses. You know, no, I don't take that medicine. No, no, no. You know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And he gets scared of Shawnee Smith when she rolls up. Of course, in that outfit, who wouldn't be? But you know, all, all of that stuff going on. That's there's these symmetries that are happening with both sides. And at least with those two characters, I've always thought that they were the, the flip side of each other's coin. And and they get about as much screen time, too, though. I guess Tom probably gets a little bit more because he's with Nick so much. But I don't know. Well, I think I, I think this like whole it. movie has flip sides. I mean, you could almost put every character on the good side and have his, you know, 80s cartoon villain counterpart on the other side. I mean, we all remember that with any 80s cartoon. You always had the good guys and the bad guys, and every good guy always had the equal counterpart on the bad team. And that's almost exactly the way this is. Well, yeah, that's is like basic know- physics, right? For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. So, I mean, that's... Yeah. So, in that in that analogy, though, Nadine and Franny are the opposites of each other. Laura Sangiacomo and Molly Ringwald. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you do it with down every single character in here. I mean, even Mother Abigail, the Randall Flag. I mean, oh, of course, yeah. I mean, they're the total polar opposites of each other. That's the the point of their characters. But and we haven't even got to them. I mean, let, you know, let's talk about Franny. I think she's a little more important at this point than Nadine is. 
Anani's more tied to Larry's story. But what do you make of of her? She's supposed to be she's supposed to be a teenager. I don't buy that at all. Molly Ringwald hadn't been a teenager in a long time by the time she made this movie. She was a teenager in the early eighties, you know. So she was definitely pushing thirty at least here. I like my Molly Ringwald with red hair. I do too. I'm I, you know everybody's first ginger crush was her the, of my generation, and it's sad to see that stuff darkened because it is. I mean that's her natural hair is that red hair, and it's. I don't know why they did that, but maybe well, she and did. It's, and it's a '90s Bob too, man. Those oh were, yeah, those were terrible. Those were the worst. Yeah, oh, it, it was. Uh, it, it was long before the Jennifer Aniston cut took over from Friends. So it was the the predecessor, and it was awful. So, but and I'm uh, going to say this too. I am a Molly Ringwall fan from her John Hughes days, but. Man, you can tell she has not acted in a while in this film. Because I don't even remember any movies that she did in the 90s besides this. And it just seems like she is just... Every line that she is reading is she like... She's reading it like she's on the show Full House. Oh, dude. It's like she's reading cards off to the side. Like, literally. It's it's the worst performance in the ensemble by far. I'm just going to say that right now. I... I don't necessarily dislike her because I do like Molly Ringwald, and I think she's kind of she can always play kind of sweet and innocent and stuff. But she's terrible in this; like she is an awful, awful actress. In, well, in I think it's because she's playing against her type. Where you have this movie, and is it Harold the one that has a crush on her? Yeah, Corey yeah. Nimick. Yeah, uh, and uh, it's Parker always the Lewis. other way around yeah. with her is because she's normally the one going after somebody, at least in the roles that she's known for. Where in this, she's playing the. Seduct, not seductive. Well, she's playing coy about it. Like yeah. she doesn't want anything to do with it. And what we don't know, and what gets revealed, and it's much clearer in the book, is that she's come home because her and her boyfriend have broken up, and she's pregnant, and she doesn't know how to tell her dad that. And then, then the super flu hits, and you know, well, maybe I shouldn't tell anybody that, you know. So I don't know, but she survives it, and that's her. That's her angst the whole time is wondering: Is my kid gonna have this, or gonna be immune to it as well? Which I don't even think they even brought up that she's pregnant yet in the parts that we've watched. No, they they haven't. And if memory serves me correctly, isn't it Gary Sinise's kid? Well, see, I think that's one of the changes. Is and it'll be curious to know as we go forward with this. In the book, it's clearly it's somebody else's, and then Sinise just you know becomes the father step in or whatever, and that's you know all well and good. But here, it's almost like they hook up in Boulder, and then they you know that's what they. that's what comes of it. They have a kid from it. That's what, I'm trying, that's what well, comes it's, of it. Well, just back to my point where she's always playing the one that's going after the guy. And in this part, with this Harold guy going after her, the way she's like playing it and stuff, it's just like, it's not her. You know, she, I, I don't buy that some guy has got this huge, huge, huge crush on her. She's not a bad looking girl, but I don't think she's like someone that someone's going to be completely enthralled with. And well, just you would buy that Harold would be because look at him. I mean, the way they, they play him is he's this, you know, pimple-faced nerd who writes poetry about her and rides a scooter. And he's I just guess, a, he's, I guess. He's, supposed to be the, he's supposed to be the ducky here if you want to do the John Hughes stuff again. With he's really, to, really bad prosthetic pimples. Exactly. He's supposed to be that, though. He's supposed to be John Cryer here playing that role. And I want to I tell you this now. If they, if they really wanted to stunt cast this, they should have got John Cryer to play Harold. That would have been awesome. You know, because he would have totally done it. Everybody would have bought that immediately. But it's hard to believe Parker Lewis you can't get her attention. You know? And particularly the way that he changes in the course of this. And I want to tell you something. Harold is, at, on one hand, like this lovesick puppy. And on the other hand, he plays this incredibly jealous 
dervish jerk once they meet up with uh Stu and Glenn later on, you know, and and I don't know. I I really thought they were telegraphing that obviously he's going to go over to the dark side at some point. He's going to betray everyone. Yeah, definitely. I mean, of course, when you're going to go to the bad side, you're going to start driving motorcycles and wearing leather. I mean, that's that that's the uh the main thing of being a bad guy, right? Well, <laughs> well, you know, that's that's what we know is that the bad guys wear leather. I mean, that's well, look at the bad guys in Christine. It was the guys that you know when Arnie wanted to look tough. What did he do? He started dressing up in black leather. You know, that's that's a common Henry trait. Bowers leather jacket. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. For Sutherland leather, leather jacket. jacket. God, Stephen King ripped himself off all the time. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's only having done this retrospective that I can look back and see how many times the archetype gets repeated. I mean, over and over and over again. And each time, it's, you know, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's just downright worse, you know. But I have a hard time buying Harold's transformation to the dark. Like, they needed to give me a little bit of that dark side early on because at this point, he, I don't know, he's just too sweet early on. And then all of a sudden, I wouldn't he call him weird. sweet. I just call him pathetic. I mean, this guy is just like, he's like a little. He's like a little, like a little puppy dog with his tail between his legs, like going up to her. Oh, I, I, I got published in this book. And, uh, <laughs> it's all about you. Know, you. Yeah, yeah I, I submitted four, but they're, but they're really, really, you know, they got a lot of stuff they got to publish, so they only published one. I mean, it's just like God, shut up, dude. You wonder why you're not getting this girl. It's like, <laughs> yeah, of course she's not going to be attracted to you. You're acting like the, the beat up little redheaded stepchild brother or something like that. I mean. God, man, grow some balls. I mean, well, let me say this though: it it is you get that part of him being pathetic. It's hard to buy that the pathetic guy becomes so I don't know obstinately jealous throughout the course of his story. Well, That's isn't it I'm something saying. that he's been used to? You know, it's you would not think like, so. Yeah, it's not like this is the first guy that threw you know she threw him over for. You know? And clearly Franny is not, I mean, she's using him for this. You know, they're laying around listening to, you know, Don't Dream It's Over. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, she's got her head on his lap and stuff. And he's like, oh, I don't know what to do. You know, I mean, it's it's like right yeah. out of American Pie. Yeah, I mean, it would have been a little bit better if it would have been a little bit more of a dialogue between them where maybe, you know, like, he acted that way because people were always constantly bringing him down and now those people yeah. are dead. And maybe he felt like he was chosen. Yeah, can I as say a way this? to do it, and then and then after he kind of becomes more confident and tries to become Fran's protector, then she shoots him down. And well, that's the, that's becomes... the problem with that scene is that Stephen King lets crowded house tell you everything that they need to be saying at the time, you know, and that's you have to like pay close attention to that song. And I love that song. Like I've always liked that song. I love crowded house, but that was the wrong move. Like that, you know, because again, I have to then I have to go back and go, wait, why is he acting like that? Oh, I guess it is because you know, like it's. I don't know. It just seems to be too forced, in in my opinion. I I don't I don't buy it. So it's I have a hard time with it. But it, it, moving on, I mean it it it's fine because we're gonna see that I should say all these people start to converge with one another, you know. And I guess we should talk about how Larry and Nadine meet up. They're like the last two people alive in New York as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is dead on the courthouse steps, which I did find that yeah, can cameo we actually, hilarious. Can we talk about the cameos in this movie? Though? Yes, because there's a lot of them. Yes, there are some. I mean. I was shocked to see Ed Harris in this. Ed Harris plays, you know, kind of a unnamed army general guy who's kind of just being the exposition character. He's just kind of like in a couple scenes and kind of explaining what's going on. Well, his his best scene is when he kills himself. The note that's pinned to him, I don't know if he saw it or not, it says guilty. So, like, you get the idea that he was probably the architect of the weaponized flu. You know, like, this was his idea, and it's gone horribly wrong. 
Yeah, I yeah, I guess now thinking about it, yeah, I guess yeah, he probably was the one who kind of maybe maybe not came you know, made it, but maybe it was the one who came up with it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, he would of, be the kind of guy that, man. yeah, he would have been the military liaison behind the idea, you know, that, and this is, and his only punishment he can figure finally is he just has to take himself out, you know, and that's, and you see how the rest of them react to it. Like, they're visibly shaken by it. But I like his performance. I'm with you. It's a great cameo. He's only in, like, four scenes, but he's really good in this, and it's one of the well, neatest to see. speaking of... And then the flip side of that, who's not very good, is uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Oh, bring out your dad. (laughs) He's ringing that bell. He's coming for you, Larry. I'm like, man, Kareem's best cameo will always be the spot in Airplane when he was the (laughs) co-pilot. You know? The hell I don't. But the thing, though, is, like, man, you got this guy, like, ringing the bell, like one of these, you know, apocalypse callers. And the dude's, like, seven foot six, man. It's like, this guy is gigantic. Gigantic. I mean, yeah, he's, he's like he's, he's the, so out of place in this, where he's just walking around. It's like, yeah, you just yelled at, you know, was yelled at all. You yelled Larry, at Larry, and Larry's not even up to your freaking nipples. <laughs> I know that's the funny thing is like he is so much bigger. It would have been better if he was walking around with a scythe and a black hood on, you know, and had been the Grim Reaper or something. It's so ridiculous. But you know, th- I got this feeling because of the way that the cameos work in this. I mean, you got a lot of the horror maestros, you know, that cameo through this thing too. Kings in it, a lot of them are. That everybody just wanted to do something with this. Like people were aware of this work and they thought this is going to be important. We need to, you know, I want to be a part of this, et cetera, et cetera. That's the feeling I got from it at least. Well, and then you also have the Stephen King regular in here with Kathy Bates and she plays the, uh, yeah, the Rush Limbaugh you know, type, uh, radio announcer who gets, you know, murdered by the military cause she won't shut up about, you know, the, the fact that they're burning bodies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Or I guess she's more like Glenn Beck, actually, but I don't think he was anything at this point. So I thought she's more like Art Bell or something like that. Or oh wow, I didn't like think about like that. Some kind yeah. of like government conspiracy person on there and stuff, and now people are like actually listening to her now because it's all coming true. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, why would you not at that point? You know, so I'm sure her ratings were through the roof. But yeah, that I mean, she's uncredited even as a cameo. Well, I think all three are. I don't think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Ed Harris no. are credited in this at all. No. And, I, I liked her scene, but man, is that capped off bad with Molly Ringwald going, oh my God, what is going on? Oh yeah, the, the like, fact that people in Maine would be listening to that show, which is clearly out west somewhere, it's really Dad, know, it's weird. So This isn't real, is it? This isn't, oh my it's God. Like that the 1% it's, like, of, it's like the 1% of society that's surviving is all listening and watching the same thing. Like that, The, the chances of that are slim, but you go with it again if you want to go with the story. So, But back to where we were before we got into the cameos, Larry and Nadine meet up, and they seem to be the last two living people in New York City. That, you know, I've been to New York a few times. That would be disturbing if everyone around there was just dead. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of creepy as they're walking around. I mean, you see people hanging out of the cars and corpses and people decomposing everywhere. And it's, you know, it's when they're walking around. I mean, you can tell they did this all in a back lot or something like that because they really don't explore much in New York. But what they do show, I mean, I was impressed with whatever the production of the, for the limited production the show probably had. I mean, well, there's... Oh, yeah. It, it looked really good. Like, And I think Larry really summed it up. He said, imagine, we got to get out of here. Imagine what this place is going to smell like in two weeks. 
And he's exactly right. I'm like, well, you know, that's a problem I hadn't thought about, but that, that's a very you know, real there as fast as he could. Yeah. And, he, of course, he wants her to go with him because, one, she's a real human being. And, two, he's kind of got this thing for her. You know, now, I don't know. You know, Laura San Giacomo, in certain ways, can look hot. She's kind of got that what I call Jersey hot thing going on, but then sometimes she can just be really shrill and almost like a dime store friend dresser, and I just, you know, she gets on my nerves in some ways, but I don't know. She just comes off like she she kind of has that witch, witch. you know, eyes and her hair and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's very much in that same vein. I agree. Yeah, it's not like, oh, she's not hot, but she's also not Yeah, she's not, she's not ugly. She just... Again, you know, she can look scary and then she can look really hot in the same moment and stuff. But she's a real tortured soul because she's having, you know, counter dreams to Larry's dreams about Mother Abigail. She's having dreams about Randall Flagg. And he's like trying to get her to, you know, come and be his woman, basically, be, to be, you know, his concubine, if you will. I don't know. How'd you, how did you read that? That, you know, she was dealing with that while Larry was trying to figure out how to get to Nebraska. Uh, I kind of liked it because at this point we had a couple Mother Abigail dreams and she was right. kind of hinting that there is another force out there. And then we're finally actually getting to see what other people are probably seeing right now in their right. dreams. Because everybody who's alive is having dreams. That's what's what I took it. Is that either you're the type of person who's going to be more attracted to work with Abigail or someone who's going to be more you know, inclined to work with Flag. And I think with her character, though, she was very a uh, conflicted character. I think she was having these dreams with right, him, like, but she didn't yeah. want to have those dreams. Where I think where she wanted to be on the good side, but it's right. just... It was almost like it was she couldn't control. control. And that's, that brings up like, an interesting point. Because so much of this is about, you know, you get a choice, right? I mean, that's the ultimate morality tale, too, is that you have free will, you have choice. But it's almost like she doesn't have choice. I mean, how did you feel about that? Because, I don't know, I find that to be really interesting that you know she wouldn't have choice in this this uh situation i I think it was almost like maybe almost like a nature versus nurture effect here because i think like based on how you were in your previous life i mean we can call the before the plague the previous life i think i think that kind of dictated who was going to be coming after you because i don't think it was you that chose a dream i think it was them that chose you where I think Abigail and stuff was, you know, she knew who these people were and she was talking to them and she was the one telling them to come over to her. She sensed who were the people that she wanted and I think Flag sensed that as well. Where she might have been the type of character who kind of led, you know, Flag to come and want her, but I don't think she wanted. I don't think she wanted that. I think that really she wanted to be good. I think that's why she goes with Larry. And so, and so, and so yeah, initially, instead of seeking out Flag, I think in a way she was just kind of like, I gotta try to. I got. I, I don't want right. to do that. I want to. You know. I want to be on the good side. I want to go where these people are going and stuff. And well, that's the thing. I like she, she tells Larry, like I'm gonna wind up sleeping with you, and I just can't let that happen because she thinks that will ruin, you know, him or so. I don't know something. It was really kind of strange how that all plays out. But then she bails on him to go to Vegas, and you know he's left to head off to Nebraska by himself. Yeah, I think in a way she's almost like a anti. You know. Interesting. Virgin Mary, you know, where she's there to, you know, she's yeah, a virgin. Clearly, she's I mean, that's what she's there to do, and we'll see that as it goes forward. You know, maybe, maybe we couldn't even say, you know, maybe she's a, she's a virgin, and maybe she's the most opportune one for, maybe Flag needs a virgin or something like that to impregnate, you know, bring on the Antichrist or whatever he's going to bring on. And she was the, out of all the virgins left alive, 
she was the most ripe for him, you know? Like, that was the one that he had the best chance of getting with, and that's why he's constantly going I guess so. Her. I mean, yeah, that. I mean, he does prey upon her. That's pretty clear. I mean, he goes hard after Lloyd, and he goes hard after her because he knows they're important. Well, let's just... Let's just get in the flag. I mean, when we see him in like the visions, a lot of times he's just kind of pops up real quick. Like, yeah, he's he's like, he's a dead scarecrow, or he's yeah, he's all kinds of things. And as far as like his initial scene coming on, I liked it. I liked that he's kind of like he's ominous with a crow, that crow that's flying around. That's him, you know. And he also he just appears on the street and he's walking and he just kind of like snaps his fingers and he kills the deer. And he just does it because hey. I can do that. I got the power to kill people. And I know I've read a lot of Stephen King books. Are I know who Randall Flagg is. I mean, Randall Flagg is a very, very popular character in many, many Stephen King books. I mean, he may not appear as Randall Flagg in a lot of the books, but he's in the books as maybe a different character. You can always tell because he always has the RG initials. But he's not played as that type of villain in this movie. Not like he's like some... You know, like demon from another world he's oh yeah he's the devil incarnate that's exactly how i read it i and i'm not familiar enough with the other works of where he's been in and what he's supposed to be so i wouldn't have known that that's an interesting thing to note but i i mean i i look at this as this is you know papa legba right here i mean this is this is the man in the books i mean it's probably not a really fair comparison but something you'd probably understand he's almost a creature like it where he where he's just kind of he's kind of just a this monster creature, you know, another life form from another universe that comes around. He's just in our universe right now, just having fun or preying upon people. But in this one, I mean, definitely he's 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 Satan. He's Lucifer. Where Mother Abigail is either God or some yeah, type. Yeah, you of know, angel. that's the thing is like I think I look at her as like she is almost like Moses because she even does lines about leading the children of Israel and stuff like that. And she's old and all this stuff. And she, you know, is a little bit of self doubting and all that. Like I look at her as she's kind of Moses in this, if you know the Moses story. And so I don't know, it's an interesting way of looking at it, the, the religious symbology and how King likes to play with that here and, and who's what. Oh, this whole movie is just, it's thick in this movie. The religious, the religious, you know. It's not even an an undertone, it's an overtone. I mean, it's part of the story here, because you can't tell the apocalypse without the story of good and evil in some way. And the easiest way for the majority of America to understand that is to hit them with what they learned in vacation Bible school. Yeah, and I mean, God is so great that he's getting a Jewish girl to sing amazing (laughs) Yeah, I did find that humorous. Let me ask you this, since we're on flag. He seems to be bent on, he's got to have Nadine, he wants Lloyd, and he does this whole thing with Lloyd about, I want you to get the trash can man and bring him here. He's important to me. And we see that trash can gets talked to earlier, and he sets off these you know, uh, fuel refineries in Des Moines. Uh, and Larry winds up there you know, after it's already happened and stuff. But they talk about that, and I don't know. I mean, what what did you make of the fact that he needs these three people and we don't really know why yet? I really didn't know what to make of it. I mean, I always kind of figured that he wanted Lloyd because he's going to be his right-hand man, and probably he's seemed like he's probably one of the more intelligent people left from everybody that we've met, at least intelligent in the way that he's a guy that Randall can actually right. get to be on his side, where I don't think guys like, you know, Sinise's character or, you know, whoever are going to join him. So he's the most, again, ripe for him. But the trash can, ma'am, I... Trash can, ma'am. Trash can, man. I I don't know what to make of the character. I mean, like I said, he's a real wild card, and the fact that Flag is coming off as a very poised, calm, articulate, you know, intelligent man, 
that it kind of like, why are you trying to align yourself with some guy like this? I mean, this is someone that you can't control, obviously. I mean, he does get to the point where he sees Flag as a deity because he's always going, you know, for you, for you, for you. But it's like, yeah, my life for you. Yeah, dude, I mean, he's he, my my life for you. Yeah, but he's like a he's like a crazy. Yeah, dog. and it's very weird, like his devotion to Flag, and you know, it's almost like because Flag let him blow stuff up that you know that's now his best friend or whatever. I don't know. It's it's strange. It's really. It's kind of scary, you know, in in some ways. But uh, you know, Flag, of course, doesn't seem scared of him at all, and that's that's the eerie part of all of it. Is I mean, I mean, we we know that these two forces are going to be going head to head, but how they're going to go to head to head, we don't know. But we also know that this guy is suicidal. I mean, we look at in today's day and age. I mean, almost like a suicide bomber, and maybe that's what he has intention in store for him. Is that maybe like I'm going to use you and you're your willingness to give your life for me and your love of pyrotechnics to go seek these people out and destroy them. Exactly. I mean, I think that's that's exactly what we're to believe is happening here, is that um, he's gathering together the forces of what's going to be his army, if you will. And on the other hand, Mother Abigail's gathering her group together, and we don't know why, but they are all getting ready to head to Boulder, Colorado. And what did you make of that? The fact that they're going to go from Hemingford home, Nebraska, to Boulder. What was the significance of the going to Boulder, you think? Uh, the visions. I mean, the visions, they're calling you there. And the fact that all these people are having the same visions, I mean. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's it's Yeah, it's not something you can just ignore. You're right. I mean, it's why why not? But I'm. <laughs> there's nothing else to do, man. They don't have to go this to work. This is true. In the morning, I guess there's, there's I mean, no news. So, you know, there's no trial to watch on HLN this week. So. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of gas around. I mean, hey, let's go find the coolest sports car we can and let's go take a drive out the boulder. Why not? You know, well, you got we them lose? and then you've got uh, Gary Sinise's group or whatever who are all on motorcycles that are heading up to boulder and such. I mean, you've got, they're all led by Harold and his crew and stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's what's happening. So, yeah, but it seems. Go, I will say though, once they yeah. get out there though, it's like we understand that there's the good guys and the bad guys. But did they are they coming off almost like too goody goody? It is a little bit like, like when like, they're all hanging around Mother Abigail's home and it's all you know they're playing with the kid in the backyard. And I mean, who even was that? I have no idea. I'm 106 years old and I still bread. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it just seemed like it's just like some type of like. Instead of, like, Pee-wee's Playhouse, it's Abigail's Playhouse, where it just got, like, these over-the-top type, you know, goody-good characters here. And it's just like, like, I know me and you were kind of emailing back and forth this morning about this. And, like, God, man, if I showed up there, I'd just be, like, mouth opened up being like, what the hell is wrong with you people? It's definitely... We got, we, we, we got, we got everything open to us right now, you know. Uh, you know, cars that you wanted to buy, guns you've wanted to shoot off, uh, you know, multi all the booze you can drink, and we're going to sit around making freaking bread with this 106-year-old lady on this Hey, man, I don't know. File. If I've been having dreams about the 106-year-old lady, at least I'm going to go figure out why she's in my dreams. I, you know. That's what I'm saying, though, but I show up there and be like, this isn't for me. I'm going to go find <laughs> flag. <laughs> Vegas, gambling, girls, booze. Well, band, think about you know? that. I mean, Nick Andros and Tom get attacked by Shawnee Smith, or as we called her, the crazy Saw girl, and, you know, the crazy girl from the Saw movies, and Oh, which one would you give up? You know, Crazy Saw Girl or, you know, Coach's assistant, you know, Dauber? So, which, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I know what I would have done in that situation. <laughs> well, you know, Shawnee was looking good. She was re- not that she doesn't look good now. So. Yeah, she's absolutely <laughs> insane. But you know what they say about insane? Uh, yeah, I don't even want to finish that thought. So. <laughs> but, but it is all the setup for what's going to happen next. And I mean, that's kind of where we're going to break the the podcast here and and wait till next time. Now, you know, I, I shudder to do this. Is there a, can we give popcorn ratings for the first two episodes of this independently from the other ones you think? I don't think we can because honestly if we don't give if we didn't give it a low popcorn rating it goes on to why would you even finish the series? It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be invested and I'll say this, for something that is essentially spent its first two episodes out of four being set up I'm invested. I want to know what happens next. I'm down for parts three and four. I mean, it's one of those things I feel like I would want to complete, even though I'm a completist by nature anyway. Like, I, I want to see where the end of this goes. So, I'm with you. We'll belay the the popcorn ratings and such until next time. Uh, but that's where we'll break this episode of Filmstrip. Well, folks, thanks for joining us on this episode of Filmstrip. Uh, we do appreciate your support. You can find more episodes in the archive section of our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. You can also leave us a note there. And you can find links to our Facebook and Twitter pages as well as the link to our iTunes feed where you can leave us a review. We do appreciate your support. Until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Next time I yell, friend, you're going to pay attention, I guarantee it. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com for more reviews and episodes. Come see you and all your friends. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.